Hey, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're glad you joined us today, and we're glad you joined in for our study of the book of Revelation. We pray that it blesses you and encourages you, that it puts the fight back into your soul. If you're looking for more information about New River Church, just check us out, newriverchurch.org. This morning, please turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 6, 7, and 8. We're going to be there, and it would be very helpful if you had your Bible open today as we do that. Um, hmm. This is going to be a, a weird introduction a little bit, but medically speaking, medically speaking, when it comes to beating cancer, uh, the best bet is early detection, right? You got to find it early, and then you can get it before it gets out of hand, and then it gives you your greatest odds of defeating it. That's pretty much understood in the medical community, and yet the odds drop, we know, significantly uh, when people wait and let the tumor, let the cancer grow and expand and metastasize and become a, a beast. I say that because the same is true for sin. The same is true about sin. Sin is like a cancer, and it has infected the entire human race. And most people never even notice its presence in their lives. I mean, everybody feels that things are out of whack. Everybody does. You talk to anybody, they can tell you that. They know it, you know, they, they just feel it. Like, you, you can't trust anybody these days. That's just the way things are. We, that's how we assume it. We assume it's just the way things are supposed to be. That's just the way it is, you know. Nations conquer nations. Yep, that's just the way we roll. Uh, you know, bad things happen, that's just the way it is. Crooked politicians, that's just the way it is, you know. But we never stop to actually consider that all of these ills that we all know are there, that we, we never stop to consider that they're actually the result of our inherently sinful condition and that none of us is immune to it. The Bible says that all of us have sinned. Every one of us, you and every one of us has. We're all a part of this mess. And, and this is why um, in history, sometimes God allows for sin to ripen. And that's the word, it ripens and it becomes rotten. And God does that. He allows it to ripen in order to reveal it. So that we might call out to him and find healing. That's why he does it. And this is what we find in these next several chapters in the book of Revelation. It's, it's kind of like this, like God has evil on a leash. And, and every once in a while, he lets some slack on the leash. And it grows, and it, and it does its thing, and it ripens, and it gets more rotten like a cancer, and it eats, and it destroys everything in its path. And you say, well, why does God do that? Well, so that we can see it. So that we can see it, because otherwise, we're blind to it. You might ask, well, why does God do this? Why doesn't God just come down and pull the plug on the whole enchilada? Why doesn't he just fry us all and just be done with the whole operation? Because 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 tells us this, that God is patient. God is patient. And he doesn't want anyone to perish. Do you see that? He doesn't want anyone to perish. 
doesn't want anyone to spend forever in hell. That's God's heart. So therefore, God patiently works through history, giving us time to repent, giving us time to come to him. Friends, never underestimate God's patience with you. With you. Thank God for his patience. But also never underestimate God's patience with others. God desires to forgive even the worst among us. That's his heart. The crooks, the criminals, the creeps, you name it. God wants to forgive them. This is his heart. He waits and he works. And, and, and sometimes, yes, in that process, even evil itself reveals its ugly self. But God's trying to wake us up to it that we might cry out to him for salvation. Some people see it. Some of us, some of you have seen this, and you've responded by asking God for salvation. Praise God. But sadly, most people, the Bible tells us most people, the majority of people respond to it by stiffening up. We respond to it with rebellion. We respond to it by even turning against those who have bowed our knee to God in repentance. That happens. And this is the state of the human race, isn't it? I mean, why does the, you wonder, why does the world hate Christ followers so much? Listen, you understand, Christ follower, that your life is an affront to the world around you because you have what they want, but they're unwilling to submit to Jesus to get it. The only way to get what you have is by bowing your knee to the lordship of Jesus Christ. The only way to do it. But the world doesn't want to do that. That's pride. Right? So you have what they want, but they're unwilling to do what you've done to get it. Therefore, instead of bowing their knee to Jesus, they come against you. You're a constant reminder of their failure, their rebellion, and they hate you for it. So now, how's that for a stunning introduction? Looks and in his typical dramatic flair, okay, John uses imagery to, to communicate this whole reality. That's, what John, that's, what, that's why I said what I said. So John uses imagery in Revelation next to communicate this reality. And I got to warn you, it's not pretty. Like, like a, as beautiful and as breathtaking as last week was, right? We looked at God's throne last Sunday, and wow. You know, I have to admit, I listen to the podcast uh, during the week because I do that sometimes. To, I like to evaluate. It's, it's an important way to learn how to improve in, you know, bringing messages. So I'm doing that. Even I cried last week. I'm like, wow, God, you are beautiful. I just was caught by his beauty and his glory. And his, as beautiful as last week was in his throne, Right? These next few Sundays are going to be ugly. They, they reveal the noxious odor of our sinful human condition. And we will discover what happens when our sin is allowed to run unchecked in this world. And, and make no mistake, we're, we're looking in the mirror. Okay, We're not pointing fingers at liberals or Putin 
or China or Hollywood or whatever. We're not pointing fingers anywhere except right here. I'm, I'm looking at my own, my own broken, my own sin-stained soul. This is a deep dive into the soul of humanity, right? And the message of John is this. Trusting in Jesus is our only way out of this mess. That's his message. And only those who trust in Jesus overcome, and everyone else is destroyed. So in writing this next chunk of Revelation, John does this thing called recapitulation. Everybody say, recapitulation. There you go, recapitulation. And what is recapitulation? It means that he repeated himself. He recapitulates. He repeats himself which I just did, didn't I? I just recapitulated. So, so you take this topic of allowing sin to ripen in order to reveal its ugly self so that we might repent in response, right? Here's the big idea that God exposes our sin in order to deal with it. There's the big idea. Now John comes at this topic from four different angles. He recapitulates. So this morning, we look at the seven seals. Next week, we look at the seven trumpets. Week after that, the seven bowls of wrath. Finally, there's this, there's this okay, uh, nope, that's actually the slide before that. It should be the slide before that. There you go, that one. So the next week after that, you've got the, the battle. So, so we have, but basically, they're all four there are four different ways of looking at the same thing. He's, he's trying to help us to see this, this effect in the world, that sin is ripening and it's getting uglier, it's metastasizing, you see? And God is allowing this to happen so that eventually, boom, he will come down and it will be done. And, but, he's do, but he's doing it that in the process people would begin to see it and cry out to him for salvation. And some do, and many don't. And between here and the end, that final epic battle of the ages, between here and then, there's a lot of trouble. So that's why I say the next few weeks are going to be a rocky road in the book of Revelation, but it's going to be good. This is Now, I also want to say this. This is where... People will have a difference of opinion about the way that I'm presenting this material. Because a lot of people, a lot of really smart people, read these seals, these trumpets, these bowls, this battle. They, they read them as being in chronological sequence. And honestly, there's really nothing wrong with that, per se. Personally, I just feel it's a little short-sighted. So there's, um, there are uh, like four different ways that scholars look at this material. And they're all really smart, and they all have a lot of merit in what they're saying. And that's why I say I don't want to be one of those that, you know, gets locked into his, his one thing and rules everybody out. Because Revelation is such a rich book that, that I think we would owe it to ourselves to, you know, to like catch what these guys are saying, because there's so much in here. So there's four different approaches that they take to the book of Revelation, and this is the next slide. You've got the preterist, the futurist, the idealist, the historicist. Now, listen, I know, I know that what I'm about to say 
none of you is going to say, wow, that changed my life, okay? But it's important that we get this, because I want you to see that, there's, that there are some really smart people that, that, that all have some disagreements about how they see this text, and yet, but each one, I think, has merit. You know, they've got pros and cons, so here they are. So the preterist, the preterist sees this text, they believe that the events of Revelation have already happened. They believe that John, who wrote Revelation, living in 90 A.D., is about the time that he wrote this book, that John, living in 90 A.D., was writing about the destruction of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem that happened in 70 A.D. The Romans came in, they ransacked Jerusalem, they burned down the temple. It was a major event in Jewish history, and these preterists actually think that Revelation is John writing about that, that these events had already happened. And guess what? They make a strong case for it. Okay? The, the next group are the futurists. The futurists, they actually believe that Revelation depicts, as you can guess, future events. So they armed with their newspaper, and they, they seek, they look to read into the current events. They look to, look to predict the future using Revelation's prophecies. And you know what? They make a good case for it. And then you have the idealist. The idealist, these guys have actually been around since, I mean, almost near the beginning. St. Augustine was the first to really make this popular. This is like 16, 1700 years ago. So this is an old thought. But the idealist sees Revelation as being purely allegorical. And they're not, it's not at all tied to historical events, that the imagery of Revelation is basically just helping us to see the timeless struggle between good and evil. And that's the idealist approach. And you know what? They make a good case for it. And then the last one is the historicist. The historicist, they tend to read Revelation as literally as possible, and they attach to the images actual events that happened in history or even current events that are happening now. So these are the guys who, along with the futurists, they try to attach the images of Revelation to current events. So they say, you know, the locusts in chapter 8, that's the Apache helicopter, or they say, you know, they talk about the, the Pope as the second beast, or, you know, the vaccines, the number of the beast, or this, that's these people, okay? They're trying to, they attach literal specific events to each image in the book of Revelation. And you know what? They make a pretty good case, right? So, what do we learn from all of this? It's this if we dismiss one or two of these approaches, we're going to end up missing some of the truth taught in Revelation. Because each one of these approaches has some merit to it. It's not totally right, but not totally wrong. And so we don't want to just throw them out. But we've got to understand this, that here on earth, you and I are bound by space and time. So we see things in sequence. We can't help it. That's just the way we are. Li we live on this timeline. We're stuck on it. You agree, right? But heaven is a timeless place. In heaven, there is no timeline. This, yesterday is the same as today. is the same as tomorrow. It's, it's timeless. Therefore, 
check this out. These seals, these trumpets, these bowls, this battle, it's all happening right now. They've always been happening. As, as long as earth continues, it'll continue to happen. So from our perspective, it might have happened a thousand years ago. It might not happen for another thousand years. But from heaven's perspective, this battle is raging right now. And John is trying to take us into this heavenly reality. He wants us to stay awake. He wants us to see it. Trying to open our eyes to this reality that's going on all around us. Friends, this is why we are getting our teeth kicked in by the devil. This is why we're losing our children in the culture war. Because we're so busy pointing fingers at each other. We're so busy giving each other black eyes. Right? We're so busy trying to figure out if Dr. Fauci's the Antichrist, or if we're you know, busy trying to blithely comfort ourselves with, oh, you know, someday he's going to come back, and then we're just all out of here. You know, we do that sort of silly stuff. We've checked out, and we're not even fighting the real battle. It, and meanwhile, the devil's just beating us up every day. We've got to see life for what it really is. And this is what John is trying to show us. Remember how several weeks ago, on the very first Sunday, I think we started in Revelation, we, we learned this little word that John uses five times in Revelation, the Greek word eudi, and it means wake up. Remember that? Five times. You, you think, do you think that we need to get woken up? He uses it five times in this one book. See? That's what he's doing. He's trying to wake us up to see this reality. And last week, we saw the, the glory. Woo, that was amazing. But now this week, we begin, we've got to see the battle. Because, friends, the truth is, you've been called up to the front lines. And we've got to know what the battle is so that we can begin to fight it. So today, let's look at this scroll and these seven seals in Revelation 6 and 7 in the beginning of chapter 8, and then that's, that's all the farther we're going to get. So we don't have a lot of time, so we're going to skim this. Can we do it? Can we skim two and a half chapters, okay? Just so that you can get the sense for the flow. We've got to get the whole flow here. So if you have your Bibles open, I'm going to skim quick, but... If you've got your Bibles open, that'll help you, okay? So, chapter 6. Remember? Now, remember, this comes right on the heels of last week. So, remember, last week, you're in the throne room. Wow. And remember, John sees this scroll in the right hand of God, and, and, and that big angel says, who's worthy to take the scroll, and who takes the scroll? Jesus takes the scroll, right? And now we come to chapter 6. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Okay, so there's a scroll picture. I have this rolled up as my visual. You have a scroll, and it's got seven, seven wax seals down the edge of it to hold the scroll together like that. Okay? Jesus takes the first, the first seal, and he cracks it open like that. Here's what happens. 
Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come! I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the lamb opened the second seal, look at verse 4. Another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. Verse 5, lamb opens the third seal. And what happens? A black horse comes out. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice coming from among the four living creatures saying, two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. Verse 7, the lamb opens the fourth seal, and what happens? A pale horse comes out. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind them. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. Why were they killed? Because they believed in Jesus. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? How long? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. That's quite a picture, isn't it? Just, they keep dropping. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us. From the face of him who sits on the throne, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Who can stand? Now after this, chapter 7, I saw four angels standing. They blocked the wind. They blocked the wind. Saw another angel coming up from the east. Having the seal of the living God, he called out in a loud voice to the four angels. He says, don't harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard, everybody say heard, heard. He heard the number. That's important. And the number was 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. Go down to verse 9. After this, I looked. Everybody say looked. He looked. So the first he heard a number, and then he looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. Do you catch the? I heard a number, and then I looked, 
and you can't count that number. See? And then I looked, a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then the rest of chapter 7, they are just partying down and having a great time at the throne. It's awesome, right? And then look at how chapter 7 ends. We love this verse. The lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will, what's he going to do? Wipe away every tear from their eyes. What a great picture, huh? So now they're having a great time around the throne. And we come into chapter 8. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half hour. Silence. The silence is killing me. I wonder what's going to happen next. It's silent. Doesn't the silence make you feel awkward? Like, what's happening? I wonder. We were just all partying, and now it's silent. Catch that? Okay. I just don't want you to miss it. It's John's brilliant in how he writes this. This is brilliant. Brilliant writing. Like, what? There's a sense of tension. Like, what's going to happen next? I wonder. See? Silent. Zechariah chapter 2.13, it speaks about this moment. Zechariah 2. Zechariah prophesies it. He says, be silent all flesh before the Lord. For his, he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. All flesh, silent. Why? God moves. And we sit and we wait. We wonder what's going to happen next. See? And, and John is being dramatic. He's telling us something big is about to happen. What is it? Well, I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. So that's the seal? That's the big thing? Mm -hmm. So can you imagine this? It's silent. Nobody's speaking. And in the middle of this silent, dramatic pause, we're wondering what's about to happen. Seven angels step up, and each angel is given a trumpet. Does it make you wonder what's going to happen with those trumpets? See what I mean? You're, you're saying, okay, something's going on. That's the idea. That's, that's the plan. So now we read, okay? So now the angels are standing there holding the trumpets. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. Your prayer, we saw this the other week, your prayer becomes a part of this incense, doesn't it? And it goes up before God. He loves this, you know, your prayer. I, I just was thinking this yesterday. I was taking a walk yesterday, and I, and I caught a smell. I, I caught, I mean, I, I love, you know, you catch, like I could smell somebody's laundry, actually. You could smell their, you know, their dryer sheets. They obviously had their dryer going, and the wind shifted. I'm like, ooh, that's downty fresh. Look at that. It's like a nice smell right outside, right outside like that. And you think, 
but, but, then, but then that made me think. I thought, wow, right. This is what, the, this is what my prayer does. My prayer is an incense, and it stops God in his tracks. Oh, that smells good. What is that? Mm, my people are praying. Mm, mm. See? Your prayer stops God, and he finds it sweet anyway. Okay, so the smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of God's people, went up before God from the angel's hand, and the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar. Look at this. In response to our prayers, the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Look at verse 5. Can you read that out loud with me again? Just read it out loud. There came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashings of lightning, and an earthquake. That's important. I had us read it out loud. It's important because we need to see that this phrase gets repeated four times, actually, in the book of Revelation. We saw it first last week at the throne, so it describes the throne of God. Peals of thunder, lightning, earthquake. We saw that last Sunday. And then this same phrase gets repeated three more times, once here, and then twice more, after the trumpets and after the bowls. In other words, what's John doing, okay? He's using it to, com using it to complete these three cycles. Complete the cycle of the bowl, of the seals, thunder, lightning, rumblings. <sighs> the cycle of the trumpets, thunder, lightning, you know, peals of thunder, same thing, rumblings. The cycle of the bowls, he repeats it again. What's he doing? He's telling us that these are all three the same event. He's just looking at them from different angles. It's a literary way of linking these three events together. So he's not saying, okay, here's the seals, and then here's the trumpets, and then here's the bowls. He's put them together, showing us the same thing from three different angles, you see? And so that's, it's called recapitulation. That's, that's the point, okay? It's recapitulation. So this seventh seal is nothing more than a setup to the seven trumpets. You see that? The seventh seal, what, like what happens? Nothing. That's the point. Nothing happens in the seventh seal. Because you're supposed to go, what, what? These angels are given these seven trumpets. Okay, so that's next. So now we're seeing the trumpets, okay? So just when you thought John was done, he repeats his point by introducing a new image, the trumpet, which we're going to look at next week, okay? But today, let's look at these seals real quick. The first four seals are represented by four horsemen. The four horsemen are famous. Uh, a lot of movies, books, we, we kind of have been fascinated by the four horsemen. They've caught our attention in culture a lot. And people have all, I mean, there was even, we were talking the other day, I was talking with Glenn the other day, we, there's like that movie a couple of years ago had Woody Harrelson in it, and, uh, and it was called Now You See Me, and uh, it was these four magicians called themselves the four horsemen, and they were basically thieves, you know, but anyway, they're kind of borrowing this language, you know, it's some, my point is the four horsemen Hollywood knows about these guys, but of course they, because they've just captured, I think it's the brilliance of John in writing this, it just captures your imagination. You wonder, who are these guys? Well, John tells us who they really are. Remember, John is using symbolism to convey a message. 
okay, and to make it memorable. So these four horsemen are not literal four guys riding on horses. It's safe to assume nobody in John's original audience was looking out their window like, hey, when's the next horse coming by? Like that's, they're not literally horses. John is using this imagery to help us to see what he sees, and these four horsemen represent the basic ills that have inflicted humanity down through the ages. Remember, God wants us to see what sin looks like when it's allowed to ripen. So this first white horse and its rider has a bow and he wears a crown. Who do you think that looks like? Jesus, only it's not Jesus. Jesus is found in Revelation 19. You go over to Revelation 19, 11 to 16, that's the real Jesus. He's riding a white horse, faithful and true on his thigh. He has many crowns, meaning he has all authority. He has a sword coming out of his mouth. He slices and dices with the words that he speaks, right? His words are truth. This rider is not Jesus. This rider, many people believe to be the anti Christ. You think he looks like Jesus, and that's part of what makes him deceptive, which is how he conquers. He has one crown, not many crowns, which means he has some authority, but not all authority. And he has a bow, which Ephesians chapter 6 says he uses to shoot flaming arrows at us. And how do we extinguish them? With the shield of faith, don't we? See? He's followed, see, and this guy goes out around the world to conquer, to divide, to destroy. He's followed by the fiery red horse who brings division and death as people kill one another. This has all the marks of the devil on it, doesn't it? Steals, kills, destroys, like that's what he does. He always divides people from other people. It's how he conquers. He deceives this is followed by the black horse who devastates economies. Lust and greed and thirst for power inspire those who lead, and they take everything they can out of a nation's economy, which causes inflated prices on basic foods needed for survival, like wheat and barley. But of course, you notice they leave the wine and the oil untouched. Catch that? Isn't that interesting? So the wheat and the barley are inflated, but wine and oil, let's not touch that. What's he saying? Well, here's the deal. In Rome, in ancient Rome, wine and oil was mostly consumed by the rich. Wheat and barley, foods that common people would eat. Um, so who gets hurt when inflation rises? Do the rich people get hurt? They don't get hurt. Poor people get hurt. That's what happens. And that's what's happening here. In fact, it's interesting, a uh, little history note. In 92 AD, the emperor Domitian, who was emperor during the time that John's writing Revelation, Emperor Domitian actually ordered that vineyards in Rome be destroyed in order to plant grain. But he got such backlash from the political class that he rescinded his order. Interesting? Hey, man, don't be touching our wine and oil. Hey, hey, hey. Let the poor people eat cake. That's kind of, the, there's, so there's this division that's happening, and the economy is getting wrecked. That's the black horse. He devastates economies, leaving hungry people hungrier and rich people richer and more selfish. Followed by the fourth horse, which is pale. 
Now, literally, the word pale here is translated yellowish green. Think about it. This is everybody's favorite color, isn't it? You ask children, hey, what's your favorite color? I love the color of puke. Like, that's my favorite color. And that's this horse, pale. He's yellowish green. He's puke green looking. It's the picture of disease. If you go on your phone, your phone even has a little sick emoji. And he's pale, isn't he? Right, so that's the whole point. So this guy is death, disease, famine, plague, sickness. And when the fifth seal is opened, we get a, a look at the greatest injustice of earth. The greatest injustice of all time. All of the conquering and the backstabbing and the inflation of common goods and the disease and the, de and the death is nothing compared to this injustice. This is the injustice that moves Jesus to action. Don't forget this. Number five, this is what moves Jesus to action right here. The fifth seal reveals the injustice that's done to God's people. These martyrs call out to God for justice. Do you see that in verse 10? How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of earth and do what? Avenge our blood. You see what they're crying out for? They're crying out for justice. Justice because we were killed. Why were we killed? Because we believe in Jesus. We were killed because we hold to the testimony of Jesus. That's the only reason why we were killed. Jesus, avenge our blood, you see. And God answers their prayer, but probably not really how they want to hear it, does he? Do you see this answer? It's not the greatest answer, I got to tell you. I was like, Lord, verse 11, see it? Just a little while longer, he says. Until what? Until more of you get killed. Hear this carefully. Sin ripens, and as it ripens, it gets worse and worse, and more people get hurt. But hang on, it's this injustice that actually leads to the opening of the sixth seal. And it's this sixth seal that reveals the end of the world as we know it. Look at, do you see that? I mean, how else could you read that? The sun turns black. The earth, the, the moon turns red blood, the earthquake, stars drop out of the sky like figs dropping out of a tree. Every mountain and island's removed from its place. Clearly, the earth is shaken. And how do the peoples of earth respond in the sixth seal? You see how they respond? They hide and they beg to be buried alive by the mountains. Why? Because they can't stand, in verse 16, it says, because the face of the one who sits on the throne and the wrath of the Lamb. Please hide us from that. What's happening? The wrath of the Lamb? That's an odd picture, isn't it? We don't think of lambs as being wrathful. Ever think of a lamb? I mean, you think fuzzy, cute, lamby, and he's filled with wrath? Yes. So John is obviously painting a picture of what happened on the cross. The lamb is obviously a reference to Jesus. And when we call Jesus the lamb, it's a reference to his sacrificial death on the cross for the sins of humanity. Jesus died on that cross to pay for our sins, did he not? Yes. And see, and of course, the martyrs whom we just saw when the fifth seal was opened 
are those who have acknowledged that the sacrifice of the lamb is good. They have received his free gift of salvation from sin. But the rest of the world, in killing these martyrs, has done more than just kill people. They've snubbed their noses at the lamb who saved them. They've scoffed the lamb who would save them if they would just humble themselves before him and receive his forgiveness in the same way. But they don't. Instead, instead of humbling themselves before Jesus, they come at people who believe in Jesus. And what happens? Jesus' wrath comes. And his wrath towards the world is completely justified. It is. He died for the world. Reject him and kill those who received him, now he's mad. See? And here John employs another literary technique uh, called an interlude, which is chapter 7. Chapter 7 is an interlude. So you catch these. I hope, you're, I hope that I'm communicating this correctly, that you can feel the tension in the text. Like chapter 6, it's bad. It's bad, and all this sin is just ripening and getting more and more and more rotten, and God's people are being killed, and then Jesus comes, wham, his wrath comes against the world because you've, you're killing my people, you're scoffing at my sacrifice, see? And now, and now this is where we are. And you think, well, whoa, that's that bad. What's the seventh one look like? And John says, you're going to have to wait. And he gives you an interlude. And this is chapter 7. And, and in chapter 7, John takes us from this big mess and he transports us, as it were, into heaven. He goes, let me show you. What, what happens? What's happening with God's people right now? So the whole world is, is begging for mountains to, to fall on them and kill them and hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. What, what are God's people doing right now? Oh, let's see. What are God's people doing right now in Revelation chapter 7? Woo, they are having a good time, aren't they? God's put a seal on them. He seals them and he says, you are mine. You're mine, my people. I'll be your God, you'll be my people. So he makes them his own. And then he brings them in and they are given white robes and they are, which are a symbol of, of victory and of purity, and they're given palm branches, which is the way that they celebrated back then. They're waving palm branches. So his people are just having a grand old time in the presence of the Lamb. Aren't they? It's amazing. Now, this is important because, like I said, this is an interlude, and John has three of these in the book of Revelation. This is the first one. The second one comes after the bowls, after the trumpets, rather. And then the third one, it comes in Revelation chapter 20, after the bowls and after the battle. There's a, a final third interlude. And all three interludes are pictures of what happens to God's people. Here's the earth, and here's earth's people, and here's what's happening to them, and here's what's happening to God's people. And God's people are having a very different experience than the rest of the world. Because God's people are enjoying his favor and his blessing. Do you see this? It's amazing. And Jesus, and, and chapter 6 shows us the horror of our sin, right? And now God's, chapter 7 opens, and the angels are 
celebrating with the people of God, and they take this seal. Now, this seal is important. The Old Testament prophet Ezekiel saw this marking on the forehead in Ezekiel chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. He prophesied it. And then over in the New Testament, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, it says that we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit of God actually seals us. And you say, well, yeah, why the, why the forehead? Well, the forehead is the center of your thoughts. It's, it's kind of like a way of saying you ask Jesus into your heart. You know, it's kind of the center of your being. It, it, it just marks you. It just says, yes, I am God's and he is mine. And he's captivated my thoughts. He's captivated my heart, my mind, my imagination. I'm his and he is mine. That's what he's saying. And, and this is important to notice. John, I, we, we read them in chapter 7. Verse 4, John hears a number, 144,000. And then verse 9, John looks and he sees a multitude that he can't count. So which is it? Is it countable or is it not countable? And the answer is it's both. See, what's going on? I believe that John is seeing all of God's people. And, and, he's, and he's saying he's bringing Jew and Gentile together. Because remember, in the first century, that was a big deal. It's not that big a deal for you and me now. It really isn't. But for them, it was. There was a divide between Jewish Christians and and Gentile Christians, and, and the apostles, the pro, they were trying to bring this rift together, okay? So I think it's part of what's driving John here. So he sees Jewish believers, the 144,000 represented by Israel, and it's not a literal number, it just means the completed number. And then he sees all believers, and it's both Jew and Gentile, and they're there in the presence of God. And they're coming together, and it's uncounted, and they're wearing white robes, and they're celebrating, and they're partying, and they're getting down around the throne. And here's the message that John is giving to us. The message is this. Evil is allowed to ripen and to bear its ugly fruit in order for it to ultimately be overthrown. But in the process, God will not lose any of his people because they've been sealed. The true people of God are marked by him. He knows those who are his. And although these events are terrifying, God's people can be assured that for us, the victory is already won. See, it, that's the kind of that's the big message, right? Yeah, you can clap. That's a good one. <clears throat> See, you're, it's, the world is falling apart, but God's people are secure. Now, chapter 7 also serves as a way to build suspense because you're coming into the opening of the seventh seal in chapter 8, which opens with silence, we said. And the seventh seal, it's silence. See, after all the mayhem brought on by all the other six seals, the seventh seal is silence. And without a word being spoken, these seven angels step up. They each take a trumpet, and they're there waiting, right? Which, by the way... As soon as John saw the trumpets, it's an immediate uh-oh, okay? Because there are only two reasons why they used trumpets in the first century. The first reason was they used it, they did use it to call people to celebration. It was used for that. We learned that in Leviticus, the Feast of Trumpets, absolutely. But more likely, more often, the trumpet was used in warfare. It's used as a warning sign. Trouble is coming. And so John sees these seven trumpets, and it's an immediate 
uh-oh, okay? John leaves us in suspense, though. He doesn't know which is it for. Is it for celebration or is it for warning? We don't know yet. We don't know yet. Instead, he draws, us our, draws our attention to this angel with the incense. And we learn that the incense is the prayers of God's people. And what's amazing is the way that God responds to the prayers of his people. God responds to them. Do you see that? Our prayers go up like incense, and what, does, what happens? The angel takes this fire from the altar and hurls it onto the earth, bringing us to the end of this first cycle with this phrase, then came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. You say, wow, that's what happens when we pray? Yes. Your prayer moves heaven, which moves earth. See, E.M. Bounds was a preacher back in the late 1800s. He was a chaplain uh, during the Civil War with the troops. And he said this, it's one thing to talk to men about God, a greater thing to talk to God about men. It's a great thing to talk to men about God, far greater to talk to God about men. Because our prayer moves heaven, which shakes earth. That's how this goes, see? So you say, well, what are we to make of this? And worship team, you can come up and start us off here at the end. You can. But what are we to make of this? How, how do we bring all this to a close today? There's three things. First of all, this, friends. Revelation trains our eyes to see the world spiritually rather than naturally. That's what it does. That's what John's doing. This is why we're losing the battle spiritually. This is why. We, we keep getting tangled up in the natural, and we're giving each other black eyes, but we're, but we're not really coming at the enemy. We're not really fighting the battle that we're called to fight, friends. See? We, we still think liberals are the enemy. Listen, well, they're not, okay? Our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is against principalities. It's against the spirits, the forces of darkness. That's our battle, and John's showing us our battle. You got these four horsemen, they're running around the earth, man, doing their nasty deeds, and we're hitting each other. We're like, let's stop that. Let's start going after the horses, <laughs> if you will. If I can use the image, let's go after them, right? Let's hamstring those puppies, you know? In prayer, let's do it, you know? Listen, let me be blunt. <clears throat> you see Russia invade Ukraine? That has the white horse written all over it. He conquers. You get that? Putin's not the enemy. Putin's a guy like you and me. Broken, sinful, needs a savior. That's what he is. See? There's a sinister work. There's a sinister force at work here. The white horse is roaming the earth. And he, he inspires conquering. It's what he does. So we don't pray against Putin. We pray against that white horse. See, we bind the enemy. And we shut him down. Like I said, we hamstring it. In the name of Jesus, you're not permitted to conquer. This is what God's people are called to do, right? I mean, you see, you see the genocide of, of Uyghurs in China. You're looking at the red horse kills, slays, the sword. You, you seeing this? You see, you see inflation? You're looking at the black horse. 
You see economies upset and turned around. You see the, the divide between rich and poor getting wider and wider. You're looking at the black horse. That's what you're looking at. You see this? You, you, see, you see a worldwide global pandemic? You're looking at the pale horse, the puke green one, right? But where, but, where's, but where does our attention need to be drawn? It needs to be drawn to that. See, God's giving us this so that we can fight this battle, you see. Child of God, listen, we're the only ones on this planet with the authority to do anything about this stuff. Do you understand that? We're the only ones on this planet with the authority to do anything about this. You say, you mean I can't, you mean I can stop the war on Ukraine? Yep. Your prayer goes to the throne, which then the angel takes the fire and casts it down to the earth. You see this? This is how this works, friends. This is called intercession. But again, if we keep hitting each other, giving each other black eyes, these four horsemen just run the earth all the time. So, it's, so John is trying to help us to see the spiritual reality so that we can enter into that and begin fighting the battle on that plane because that's where the battle has to be won and fought. And that's what you and I are called to do. So that's the first thing. Revelation trains our eyes. The second thing, let me ask you this question. Let me get personal. If you saw the face of God today, would you also see the wrath of the Lamb? If you saw the face of God today, would you also see the wrath of the Lamb? Are you like the people of earth who respond to the presence of God by asking to hide? Or are you one of the people of God who sees the face of God, dons the white robe? Yes. Give me a palm branch. I'm waving that. I'm going to sing and I'm going to shout and I'm going to celebrate my Savior. See? Who are you? Who are you, um, friends? <clears throat> and let me ask this question, then how do you know? How do you know if you're in one group or the other? Well, I can assure you this. If your faith is built on your own opinion, you're on shaky ground. A lot of people think, well, I'm in the people of God because I'm a good person. And how do you believe that? Well, because that's what I believe is right. That's your opinion. If your faith is built on your opinion, you're on shaky ground. Your faith needs to be built on a higher authority than yourself. And I can tell you that as a follower of Jesus Christ, my faith is built on the Word of God which tells me that if I call upon the name of Jesus Christ, I will be saved. It tells me that he's my savior, not me. And it tells me that he's my savior, not my good deeds. The Bible tells me the ugly truth about myself. I'm a sinner. That's me. If I'm left to my own devices, I'm, I'm, I'm taking a ride with any number of these four horses. That's me. That's me. But, that, but if I trust in Jesus... He will set me free. He will make me his own. He'll seal me, and he will call me his own, and I will be a part of that people of God. So I'm asking you this morning, where are you? And I want to say, don't leave this place without settling that question. Please, 
I beg of you. And then third, last thing is this. What are you doing, people of God, to try to make certain that everyone you know, everyone you love, everyone you come into contact with is in a right relationship with Jesus? Because if there's one thing that we will see very clearly as we continue through here, that makes all the difference. We need this. We need a right relationship with Jesus. Friends, I don't know if you noticed this, but sin is ripening. Do you see it? Sin is getting more and more ripe by the day. It's rottening. The time is near. The time is near. And in light of this, it seems kind of silly, doesn't it, for us to be afraid to share the gospel? Doesn't it seem sort of silly? I mean, you think about it. What's the worst they can do to us? Kill us? Well, you're trying to scare me with heaven? All right. Okay, sure. You See what I mean? It, it's been settled, hasn't it? If I'm with the people of God, I'm sealed. This, chapter 7 is my destiny. Chapter 7 is me. See, what do I have to be afraid of? <laughs> See, so in other words, if this is my ultimate reality, then I need to share this with as many people as I can. They need to know. They need to know that, you know, Russia's not the enemy and China's not the enemy and liberals aren't the enemy. They need to know that. They need to know that the real enemy is sin and that sin has infected them and that unless they trust Jesus as their Savior, this sin will kill them too. So friends, that's our job. We get to represent this to the world around us. Um, Let's pray, okay? Thanks for listening today. If you'd like more encouragement or information about New River Church, check us out at newriverchurch.org.